I'm Leonard Lopate. Summer's here, and that means it's a good time to ask Pete Morosky, an environmentalist and nursery man, for some gardening tips. He's the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. And uh, we're also inviting you to call us with your gardening questions. We'll be taking those calls later. But uh, let me give you the number now. It's 212-209-2877. Hello, Pete. Welcome back to our show. Well, thank you, Leonard. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Uh, The weather this spring was up and down temperature and precipitation-wise with periods of mild weather, hot weather, and also very cold weather, and not much rain until very recently. But you say it's been a great spring and early summer growing season? Well, Leonard, it's all relatively speaking. You know, when we look at the comparison between last year and this year, we got a much nicer growing season so far the heat has been at bay a little bit except for of course today and then we've getting we've been getting quite a bit of rain i would say in the last two to three weeks we've gotten four to six inches of rain and that has played a big role in getting things started and getting things germinating and everybody who plants uh, vegetables in their garden knows that it's been a great year for tomatoes and some of the early vegetables like uh, uh, onions and carrots and uh, things are moving along and growing very well so far this year. So how much of an impact does that heavy rain have on the soil? Is it all positive? It is, Leonard. Um The ground was extremely dry before it started raining. I mean, unlike last spring, we had a ton of rain in the spring. But uh, this spring was a little bit dry up until about, like I said, about two or three weeks ago. Uh, It was parched dry. And, uh, you know, there was some... And what impact has that had on the plants that many of us planted this spring? Well, the impact that it's had is it gives it life. You know, Mm -hmm. the soil being so dry uh, and plants were having a tough time growing and like we we saw last year, when things turn hot and dry, plants stop growing because they just don't have the moisture uh, to to grow and, and and become mature and to reproduce. You get a lot of water in the ground, you get a lot of sun, and those are the ingredients uh, for plant growth. And this year, those ingredients have been uh, right up to normal, and uh, we've been getting a lot of real nice growth, especially with trees and shrubs. And as we were as 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 we were talking about before, Leonard, uh, some of the some of the shrubs this year and some of the small trees are really hmm. looked awesome this year. The dogwoods, the rhododendron, the mountain laurel. I have never ever seen the mountain laurel look this good. You know, I'm a naturalist. I'm in the woods all the time up here in the Nature Conservancy up in Pauling. The mountain laurel were in full, full bloom uh, over in Pennsylvania. I took some hikes over there. The mountain laurel were just gorgeous. And if anybody knows anything about mountain laurel, it's one of the prettiest flowers in the woods. And magnolias look good, forsythia. With this mild winter we were having, everybody put on a show this spring. So is uh, the growth rate this uh, this growing season making up for last year's stressful weather? It is, Leonard. Uh, last year, uh, by this time last year, many trees and shrubs had stopped growing uh, because of the heat, the wind, and the dryness, uh, you know, it was it was a, a, a three-way smack for a lot of plants. You know, not only was it dry, but the wind acts as a, a, a real intense drying agent, and that dried out a lot of the plants. 
And it just stayed that way until fall uh, when it finally started to rain again. So plants basically went dormant all last summer. And now that we're starting to get rain, they're taking advantage of some of this nice weather. And I could see trees, shrubs, and perennials putting on a lot more growth than they have in the last couple of years. Did the fluctuating weather have an impact on the ticks and other insects that come with spring? It did. And I'll give you some examples. Um, the ticks were very bad this year. Mm. In fact, uh, many of my customers, I, I have uh, customers that have fairly large pieces of property. One of the big one of the big things we're doing this year is releasing birds or guinea hens on properties or chickens. Many of these birds are bug eaters and they're literally they devour ticks. So because we had such a high concentration of ticks year, this year with all kinds of tick-borne illnesses, um, many of the birds uh, that we've uh, uh, brought onto some of these properties did a great job in alleviating a lot of these bugs, uh, especially with homeowners that have dogs and cats and other animals that are let to run free in the yard because it's not only the woods that have ticks, it's your lawn, it's your shrubs, you know, anything around your property, uh, excuse me, has, um, you know, can have ticks in it. And especially with this wild, uh, with this warm, mild winter we had, uh, the tick problem seems to be really, uh, really taking a stronghold this year. Well, pest control companies advertise that they can rid your property of mosquitoes and ticks. Does that also kill the pollinators we're trying to encourage, the butterflies, the bees, ladybugs, fireflies, and, and ants? It sure does, Leonard. Or even bats? And and migrating birds, hmm. you know, a lot of these bluebirds that are migrating from the south time their migration to areas where uh, there's a hatch, so to speak. Um, in May, with the mayflies, I noticed, you know, a lot of bluebirds coming up to our area then, and they had all kinds of bugs to, <clears throat> to, to nest it, to, to feed their young. And if we start going out spraying everything, um, you know, there goes their food. I mean, we got to tolerate, you know, and I say this, I've said this a few times on your property, on, on your uh, uh, on your show letter, bugs are good. You know, many insects in the natural world, you know, there's this symbiotic relationship between bugs and, and birds and, and animals. And we need these insects to hatch, uh, to feed uh, many of our migrating birds and, 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 and many of the other uh, animals and, and, and insects and, and, and other things that depend on, on these hatches. So uh, I'm not a big proponent of, of spraying, Leonard, as you know. Yeah, so you, try, you say I, we should avoid using pesticides, but people also do it because those bugs are, are affecting them, aren't they? Uh, Yes, they are. Uh, You know, and that's where, you know, uh, handling it a little smarter uh, than we have been over the years might be a a good idea. Like, for instance, putting up screened in porches, you know, many times, uh, you know, if especially like where I live, I got uh, a kind of a wetland behind me. You know, the mosquitoes will pick you up and carry you away. But, you (laughs) know, in the screened in porch. Uh, you know, you can stay away from these insects, uh, you know, and this time of year, it's not only uh, mosquitoes, the horse flies, the deer flies, you know, they'll they'll take chunks of meat out of you. And they're after this last rain, they're all over the place. So, you know, try and keep your outdoor activity in areas where you're a little bit protected by the insects uh, before you venture outside. 
You say that you see many people forcing plants into areas where they don't grow naturally. Um, That's exactly right, Leonard. You know, each plant grown in the wild has a certain cultural requirement. So some you thrive know, some, on sandy, dry locations, uh, and and other plants prefer wet or or rocky hilltops. That's right. That's right. And you, what you want, let's say you have a property that butts up to a swamp and you want to bring in plants that are adapted to that riparian, wet, soily, uh, adjacent to swamp, ty swamp type environment. You know, there are many plants out there like swamp azaleas and uh, winterberry holly and plethora and balloon flower. These are all plants that grow in the swamp that are adapted to that particular location. And let's say you live on a hillside uh, up on top of a mountain overlooking the Catskills and it's a windy, dry, sandy spot, you know, that would be the place for the native yucca and the potentillas and all the plants that like that type of environment. So it's very important to understand your microclimate, where you live, what type of soils you have, and what type of plants will thrive in that particular environment. So what about our listeners who do container gardening in apartment buildings, high-rises, or areas that may have limited deck or window space to garden? Well, the first thing you got to consider is um, your exposure and uh, the container you're going to use. Of course, if, if let's say you've got an outside uh, deck off of a, a, a high-rise and you wanted to plant some vegetables or even have some nice little dwarf conifers in that in that uh, uh, deck right outside. The, the first thing you want to do is make sure you got the right container, that it's a container that can freeze and thaw, that it won't crack and break on you. So, you know, use wooden, use concrete. You know, there are many types of containers you can use. You, know, you want to try to stay away from clay because once clay freezes, it'll crack and break and uh, you'll have a big mess on your hands. Uh, once you figure out the type of container you use, the median that you put in is just as important. You just can't go outside and dig soil out of the ground and put it in the container. It has to be a light soil. It has to be a soil that you know, that can take moisture and that lets air in. So because plant and plant roots uh, breathe in the right type of soils. So it has to be a light soil. It has to be a soil that can tolerate uh, drying and, 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 and getting really wet. And then, you know, you also have to make sure that the plant you're putting out there can thrive and, and is, is, is hardy for the type of environment you're putting it in. Many of these uh, environments are very windy and 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 you, you don't want to dry the plant out overnight. So, you know, do a little study, make sure you understand what your exposure is, north, south, east, or west, what type of plant will thrive in that location. And does it matter when of, you plant? If well, you're the an apartment best time dweller? to plant is during the growing season. The best time to plant in our particular area, if you had to pick a time, what is the best time to plant the plant? It's early spring, just before bud break, because so that's when all the plants are ready to put on a lot of growth. A lot so of that time growth, is already passed. What's that? That time is already passed. It is already passed, but you know now we're getting into the growing season, and you can still do container gardens into the growing season, uh, but you got to make sure that you know now they need a little bit more work than if you planted it in the spring. They need a little bit more water. They may need a little bit more care. They need may need a little bit more time on your part to establish in their containers.
the second best time to plant your container garden is in the fall. You know, the change of seasons, you know, you got nice cool nights, you got nice sunny days. You know, fall and spring are the best two times of year to plant. And I would stay away from trying to do a lot of planting of containers in the wintertime, especially if it's a, a cold, uh, snowy or, um, you know, a, a winter that has a lot of rough weather. Because of the pandemic, haven't some people begun growing certain fruits and vegetables indoors and herbs? You know, Leonard, that seems to be a big trend here at Native. Um, we're getting a lot of calls from people who not only want to do a native plant garden, but want to do a native plant edible garden. You know, a, a, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of blueberries, a lot of elderberries, pawpaws, and, and, and mix that with, a, you know, with a ground cover of strawberries, some fruit trees, currants. Um, there's all kinds of berries out there that you can plant in the garden and in containers. And uh, it, it really can be rewarding. And many people, many people are putting in gardens, not only as a structured vegetable or fruit grove, but also bringing in these plants right into the landscape. You know, rather than planting a juniper, you know, why not plant a, a elderberry shrub in front of your house? And then you got some beautiful berries uh, that you can eat and that, you know, they're, they're just as nice as, as any other ornamental that you could put in your garden. Don't some plants also clean the inside air? What are some of the plants that remove toxins in the air? Well, there's a lot of indoor plants that can remove toxins. You know, we, you know, the number one on the list are are, are the spider plants. They seem to, to, you know, take a lot of toxins out of the air and, and clean the air. You know, there's also a lot of plants that take heavy metals out of the ground. So, you know, the the best type of plant to use for that situation is, you know, go to your local greenhouse. And tell them that, you know, you want a functional indoor plant. Tell them what your lighting requirements are, because some plants require a lot more light than others. And go with the plant that they would recommend for your particular house uh, that would uh, clean the air. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Pete Morosky, an environmentalist and nurseryman. Uh, he's the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York, and joins us on a regular basis here uh, on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. And he takes your calls as well. And if you have any questions for Pete, we invite you to call us at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Seventy-seven. Hey, you've been a strong advocate of organic gardening. How can it be incorporated into the gardening, uh, into the landscape, into your vegetable garden, your terrace, rooftop, or windowsill gardening? Well, the first thing you want to do, Leonard, is, like you said, get away from a lot of the pesticide applications. Uh, the right plant in the right location. If you put a plant in a spot that likes sun, uh, that likes a little bit of sandy soil, you're going to have less problems with that plant is if you force that plant to grow in, a, in an environment where it doesn't grow naturally. The second thing you want to do is work your soil a little bit. Uh, you want to bring in organic compost. You want to bring in organic mulch. You know, one of the things we do here at Native Landscapes is we make our own mulch. We make a, a mulch mixed with root, uh, grind up roots, uh, uh, 
uh, chips, uh, you know, many other the natural uh, uh, bark, uh, pounded bark. And when you mix that all together, it creates a mulch and a soil uh, that, you know, is alive, that has biological activity going on, mycorrhizal fungi. You want plants to grow in an environment you know, they're living things. You want it to grow in an environment that's as clean as it can be. You know, just like us, you know, you eat better foods and you eat a better diet, you're going to be a healthy specimen or a healthier specimen. The same thing happens with plants. You know, the plants that have a uh, an organic an organic soil, an organic feeding method that, is, that, are, that are handled in a, in, a, in a more natural way uh, are, are going to be really good for you as far as uh, uh, vegetables and fruits are concerned. They're going to be very high in, in nutrient value uh, with little or no pesticides in them. We have some listeners calling in. Again, the number 212-209-2877. Let's go to the first call. BAI, you're on the air. Yeah. Hi. Um, yeah. Pete? Yes. Oh. My fault. Oh, I dropped it out. You know, could you call right back? Um, my engineer accidentally killed your call. Please forgive us, okay? Please call us right back. But let's take another call. Okay. BAI, you're on the air. Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. Uh, my name is Ralph, and I live just outside of Rhinebeck. And this year, um, there has been a tremendous infestation of caterpillars. Uh, I have... Um, a crab tree that I really love, and it's basically barren, like it's the middle of winter, thanks to the caterpillars, which are now turning into moths. I'm worried that they're going to kill that tree and several others on my property. So the question is, should I do anything to get rid of the caterpillars? Um, and that's it. Well, l let's talk about what you have in caterpillars, because I think what you have is what you used to call gypsy moth or sponge moths now. And it's a major league problem up here in Dutchess and Putnam County. Um, what they're doing is uh, it's an infestation. And I was up in Ankrum, New York, just a week or so ago, uh, tending to a garden that we maintain up there. And if you looked on the hillsides around where I was working, it looked like the dead of winter. That's how bad these caterpillars are. And they're creeping south, and they're, you know, they're getting into Pauling now, and they're getting into Rhinebeck and Fishkill, and they're on their way south into Putnam County. Now, if you remember back in the 70s, we had the same infestation down in this area, in and around the West Point area, uh, it was the gypsy moths. Uh, they were just devastating the hillsides. And what happened was, um, you know, trees communicate with one another. And through their roots, they were sending out a signal, somewhat, something like, hey, listen, we've been defoliated a couple of years. Looks like it's going to happen again this year. If it happens again, we're not going to be able to put on any photosynthesis. It's going to weak us, weaken us, weakening. It's going to weaken us. Is there anything we can do about it? And they sent that impulse through the soil. And somehow, somewhere, and this is how a lot of this communication with trees uh, has begun, or really, did, or they were really studying it back then. They produced an insecticide that came out in the leaves the next year, and that killed the caterpillars. Hmm. Now, there's a lot of people taking a proactive position on this and they're going out and killing uh, a, a lot of these caterpillars with an insecticide. Um, you know, it's a tough call. You know, I, I say 
let it go and let Mother Nature run its course. And at some point, maybe she'll put things under control. Um, but yeah, it's it's tough when you look out into your yard and, and, and you don't see any leaves on any of your trees. And these caterpillars are four to six inches long and they're just eating everything in their path. Um, there's a lot of conversation on this. I know there's a lot of talk on, uh, you know, Cornell recommends uh, the extension uh, website about what to do about it. But, you know, I'm going to stick by my guns and I'm going to say, you know, don't do too many pesticide, don't do too much pesticide application. And let's see what Mother Nature can do to control this like she did in the past. Okay, caller. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, let's you're take welcome. another call. BAI, you're on the air. Okay, again. Hello. Hello. Hey, are you okay, the person hi. we cut, very, cut off before? Low, but I'm, you're very low, but I, wait, 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 where are you? But Go I'm going to tell you uh, about these um, lantern bugs. Oh, my God, they're an invasion. What, what? You have nothing to say about them, or did I miss it? No, we haven't talked about the lantern flies yet. And, you know, well, the yeah, they're killing crops and trees. Right, we haven't talked about it on this show right now, but uh, we can well, get into it a little bit if you it. want. <laughs> it's it's one of those moths that just came out of nowhere. It was found in Pennsylvania oh, about three from. or four yeah. years ago. And, you know, to this date, I don't know any pesticide or any treatment of the lanternfly. I think it's so new to, to the environment that, uh, you know, they're working on it and, you know, they may have a spray for it now. But you're right. It's it's this is what happens when you start moving plants and insects around the planet to areas where they don't have any natural uh, enemies, and 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 then they run wild. You know the gypsy moths, the right, right. You know the so lantern flies. Soap, may I say is a very good um, bug repellent. I use Dr. Bronner's, and I'll just spray it and pour it all over my porch. And so peppermint soap is good and all that, but. It's, I mean, I'm on my porch. Yesterday, I killed four of them. And these are the yeah. babies, black and white. After the black and white, they get the red, and that becomes the the older one. I'm That's killing right. black and white ones. That's right. Well, you know, keep, you know, is it getting any worse? I mean, are, are they starting to well, fade out? Well, it's getting worse. Actually, I was walking over the Brooklyn, I was walking over the bridge, 3rd Avenue, 3rd Street, you know, Whole Foods. And there was a gentleman filming, and I'm like, what are you doing? He said those those bugs, you know, the lanterns, they're all in this tree, but it wasn't a tree. What it was was a um, a uh, it was a um, oh, I can't, a weed that grows into a tree by the Gowanus, and they were all covered in this tree. And he was filming it. Strangely enough, wow. yeah. I said, "Oh my God!" I was just dealing with that on the porch. Yeah. You know, Luckily, I, I only have heard, a porch. I haven't heard any huh? treatments yet. Uh, but, no, like uh, I said, I, I, I Googled it. It did say um, peppermint neem oil, N-E-E-M, neem oil. Right, that's right. That's another one. You know, I mean, I try not to use any of these harsh chemicals. So Right. Well, neem oil is an organic, you, you know, well. soaps, uh, oils, okay. anything like that is is, is Yeah, is and my, my mother used to use vinegar and water, which I'm going to make, but that doesn't smell so nice, vinegar hmm. and water. Yeah. No. Thank you for All right, your well, call. Good luck. Well, thank you. Luckily, I have a small property. <laughs> well, let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hi. Hello. Hi. Is that me? Yes, it's you. Cool. You're um, on the air. 
Uh, great. Gentlemen, thank you. This is very cool. Um, Ivy, um, the crawling one, the natural one to America or, you know, this north or whatever. And the difference between lilac and lavender and regarding mulch, can you use like eggshells and um, coffee grinds and things like that? And also um, birds. What do you actually feed them not to poison them, you know, with our own cake and bread and things like that? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Thanks. I'll listen. Well, P, you, well, you, P, you ahead, recommended man. composting on some of our previous shows. Uh, That's is right. that what he's talking about? How do you begin and what are the best things to compost? Because uh, I'm not sure I want to keep old garbage around the house. It's a, it can be a bit unsanitary. Right. You know, if you're in a neighborhood where the properties are very small and you don't have a big area for compost, you could, you could uh, attract more bad things than good things. So if I lived in that in a tight neighborhood like that, I'd buy the compost from uh, the local garden center and, and use it that way rather than try to compost. I mean, if you have enough room to compost, eggshells are good. Um, a lot of, a, a, a lot, anything but meat, vegetable parts. Uh, you know, you want to stay away from anything that is, is meat. Cause that just uh, creates a problem. But uh, you know, there are many different composters, uh, and, you know, you could take raw kitchen scraps and turn them into compost in a fairly short period of time, less than six months. But, you know, I think the safer way to go, especially in areas where you got a little a lot of varmints running around, is buy the compost in bags and spread it that way. That's the safest way to run. Okay, well, let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Yes, um, I have a question about um, indoor gardening. Go ahead. I would like to know, um, I'm trying to grow herbs in the garden, I mean in the house. Mm -hmm. And I have um, oregano, thyme, um, rosemary, and what else do I have? I have mint and sage. Are those plants I can grow indoor? You can, but you have to have real good sunlight. Do you have a direct southern exposure in your uh, from um, your windows? You obviously um, have a what? child. <laughs> Do I have a child? Well, I'm hearing music for children in the background. Oh, that's the ice cream truck. Oh, the ice I'm cream outside. truck. Okay, I'm sorry. Oh, Mr. Softy's going by, yeah. Anyway, um, you want to have a bright window where you get direct sunlight. And if you don't, you're going to have to get yourself a grow light because every one of those herbs that you mentioned to me require a lot of light. So, uh, you know, if you don't have direct sunlight from your window, uh, get yourself a grow light and then you can grow any of the herbs you want right inside your house. Okay. And my second question is... Um, I have oregano that I've grown outside, and um, it's grown like real tall. And when I chop the, um, when I chop, when I use the oregano, it doesn't seem to have the same uh, flavor as it did when I first planted it. Right. Did you let it go to seed or flower? Because that's a lot of times when it changes 
its taste. You know, you want to grab the oregano when it's really young, when it's, uh, you know, fresh out of the ground up 6, 10, 12 inches. And when you get, if you got an overabundance of it, dry it out, grind it up, and store it. Because as oregano grows, it gets a little bitter. So you want to try to, and then you're not, you don't want, uh, any of it to go to seed or flour because that's that changes the whole taste also. Okay, so next year, um, when next year when it's starting out, um, will it have the same taste of oregano or will it be um, bitter? It'll have the same taste of, uh, of oregano um right from the get-go right as it's a young plant but as it gets mature and goes into other stages it gets bitter okay all right thank you and thank you for your call and uh, you're listening to wbai new york 99.5 fm and streaming live at wbai.org my garden is all overgrown and the weeds are creeping up on my home our guest today on Let It Locate at Large is Pete Morosky, an environmentalist and nursery man. He is the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center on Route 22 in Pauling, New York, and we are taking your calls at 212-209-2877. But, Pete, before we get to some more callers, and we have a number of people calling in, I just want to ask you a couple of questions about the past. When you founded your landscaping business in 1987, weren't your customers less interested in native plantings and environmental landscaping? Have things changed over the years since? They absolutely have, Leonard. And I'll, it's an interesting story of how I got started. You know, I, I worked on an estate uh, in Pauling at the time who was owned by um, the movie producer Dino De Laurentiis. Mm. And this is back in the 80s when um, he was going to open up a store in Columbus Circle called DDL's, which was an organic food store back in the 80s when nobody, and I mean nobody, was talking about organics. And he came to us at the estate and said, I want to grow all the fruits and vegetables here at the estate. So I went into a crash course mode of learning about organics and symbiotic relationship between plants, animals, and insects. And every time I was reading, it kind of leaned toward native plants that, you know, you could do this, 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 and this, but if you, you know, when you use native plants and you go and you do this, it, 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 it does the same thing. So this whole native plant concept that I'm into came uh, when I was doing some research on organic gardening and found out, you know, the best way to landscape and to grow a lot of different things is, you know, once, like we said earlier in this segment, grow plants in an environment where they grow naturally, try to stay away from pesticides, companion plantings work all the time, and, you know, go with plants that are tough heirloom varieties, plants that have generations of success, and that's what's going to make your garden a total 
success story when it comes to fruits and vegetables. But it was self-taught and it came with, you know, me learning a lot about organic gardening and, you know, why it's so important from a native standpoint, too. Do native plants attract more pollinators and insect-eating birds and plants and trees that are, have been imported from other parts of the world? Absolutely. Think about it. Over the 10,000 years since the last glacier has receded, these, these insects and these plants and these animals have been depending on one another for generations. When you start bringing in plants and insects from other worlds, you know, our, our bugs can't eat Norway spruce or our, you know, a lot of our insects can't eat Japanese maple. But if you bring in plants that are native to this area, you know, they can, they can ingest it easily. You know, it's funny because I was reading not long ago, let's say a migrating um, uh, hummingbird is flying over Manhattan Island. And it's, you know, because Manhattan Island is a big flyway for migrating birds. And it's looking down on these roof, rooftops and wondering, where's my Asclepius tuberosa? Where's my milkweed? Oh, there it is. And you know what it looks like to him? about uh, 20 stories up, looking down into someone's yard. It's like a fluorescent light glowing in that garden. And that's how a lot of these insects and a lot of these hummingbirds and a, and a lot of these butterflies find a lot of these native plants that are becoming m m m less and less available to them because, you know, we're ripping and tearing our natural environment away and we're putting in these subdivisions and mm -hmm. we're not bringing back plants that were there before the subdivision. We're bringing back plant, you know, junipers and barberries and all this stuff that's non-native and it creates dead zones in our environment. Our natural world needs these native plants. And the sooner we get back into this whole native plant gardening where everybody's doing it, uh, you know, you're going to see the, the slow, they're just going to be gone. You know, a lot of bugs are going to be hard to find and we need insects. Insects are good. Are native plants the same, whether we're talking about New York State, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York City in particular? Well, you know, they are, uh, but they have a little bit of a different, uh, you know, because they have grown in like South Jersey versus Maine, you know, they have, they have a little bit different character because of the uh, because of the weather. You know, you got if you look at the topography of the East Coast, many of our mountain ranges uh, fit on, in a, in a north-south uh, uh, regiment uh, across uh, the geography. So a lot of these migrating birds and a uh, animals migrate down through these mountain valleys. And as they do, it, it, it brings the, uh, you know, it brings the berries with them. And I know we talked about this once before, Leonard, but, you know, you know, some some plants and shrubs are more important than others, like Cornus rasmosa, the great twig dogwood. Now, here's a shrub you can find growing from Georgia to Maine, grows in just about every field. And in the fall, it has a little berry about the size of a pea. Now, this berry is so loaded with protein and so loaded with fat that, you know, a lot of study, a lot of recent studies have come out to show that if it wasn't for the great twig dogwood, many of our migrating birds wouldn't make it across the Chesapeake Bay because they need that energy mm -hmm. to make it across a big body of water. Now, you also recommend companion planting. What's that? And, using the, and using the proper mulch. What's a that's proper right. mulch? Companion planting is bringing in plants that have the same cultural requirements or, you know, help each other 
from a from a sense of uh, you know they'll 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 detract bugs from coming in to tomatoes and stuff like uh, marigolds. You see a lot of tomato or vegetable gardens that have marigolds uh, around the perimeter of it, and you know that acts as a natural insecticide or a, a deterrent uh, uh, for uh, a lot of insects and, and and bugs that might go after that. Um, you know, in the wild, it's all about different types of environments require different types of plants. Like we were saying before, a rhododendron, you know, a rhododendron grows wild in, in hummocks in, in, in nice, cool mountain valleys where it's not in direct sun, but uh, it's got some cool, moist, full of compost type soil. Uh, and if you, uh, for instance, where you run into problems where people force plants into areas where they don't grow naturally. So you really shouldn't be planting a rhododendron on top of a hillside because the wind will just rip it to shreds. The right plant in the right location always works, Leonard. Okay, let's get back to some of our calls. Our number, 212-209-2877. WBAI, you're on the air. Talk to Pete Morosky. Good afternoon. How are you? How okay. are you both? Um, I'm right up the road. I'm right up the the road from Mr. Moraski. I'm in Wasayak or Amelia, New York, and I've been growing peppers for probably the last four to five years. This year was the worst uh, issue, the worst that I've ever had, the worst time I've ever had growing peppers. I heard you guys speaking glowingly of this year. It's been horrible for me, but. Excuse me. My peppers are starting to take off. I don't know if it was... I'm growing super hot. So I don't know if it's the necessity for warmer soil. I think what what happened to your peppers, if you remember the weather earlier in the season, if you planted your peppers really early, remember how hot and dry it was early in the season and then it started to rain? I've seen a lot of complaints from people who started their gardens really early. And then, if you remember, we had a real hard frost late May. There were two mornings in a row in late May where the temperature went down to 27 degrees. Hmm. And I had a two tractor trailer loads of trees and shrubs that were delivered the day before. So I was a nervous wreck. So yeah, but I trying to save these plants. What's that? I started them inside in like When February. did you put them out? Um, I put them out really late because it, it was so many frost, not frosty nights. Hmm. I, I put them out really, really late. We're going to call you Dr. Peppers. <laughs> <laughs> How droll. <laughs> you know, it sounds like it may be something in the soil that's lacking, you know. Maybe it's calcium. Uh, maybe it's iron. You know, uh, do you what? Do you put down compost in your soil? Do you use any kind of soil well, amendment before you put them in the ground? Here's what I did for the front. I did for the front of my house. I did an amendment, but I did a lot of them in containers. I have some okay. containers that are thriving, like the melons and those things are thriving right now. But it's the peppers that I really look forward to. My wife likes them. I love them. You know, we we can't enjoy dinner without them. So. It, it, it really did give me a hard time. I, I don't know it, what happened this year. You got to remember when it comes to container plants, especially if you're growing vegetables, vegetables will really delete the soil of many micronutrients and, and uh, uh, a lot of other nutrients in the soil. You got to 
you got to fertilize container plants more than you do the plants that are in the ground because they're depending on you for survival. Uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, you know, that's all got to come from us because many times the soil gets anemic after two or three generations of plants. And you got to, you know, you got to bring in a little bit of a stimulus in the soil to get those peppers uh, growing and keep that deep green color. Thanks for your call. Let's go to another call here. WBAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, Pete. Yeah, hi, hi. Pete. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Yes. Oh, yes. I'm the lady that was cut off very back in the beginning. Okay. <laughs> Welcome back. Okay. Thank you. Um, and thank you for your show. Uh, your show is amazing. I listen to it every day. Oh, thank and you. You're welcome. And, Pete, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Um, Yeah. Um, I live in a condo, and um, I have some large shrubs in the front, and one they provide privacy in front of a uh, a kitchen window. You know, Um, they're big bushes. One is a rhododendron, and the other one is uh, some sort of other thing that has like a bay leaf kind of thing, but it's it's a big bush. It's not supposed to be a little bush. And so they're coming around and saying that they, they're going to cut these bushes down 50%. And I protested that. I, I, I It will look ugly. It'll put up brown branches. And, and, well, their answer is, well, it'll grow back. No, I don't want that. Um, and Who is not, they? The Condo Association Association. Okay. Yeah, landscaper. So, and especially the rhododendron, uh, that's a big bush. It's grown a long time. So what do you recommend, I say? I I have to agree to something. So I agreed to 25%, and my rationale was, all right, let's take it go slower and easier and see how the bush adapts and, and not shock it by cutting off all half of it. Let me just tell you, that was an excellent recommendation, especially with rhododendrons. You know, we go onto many properties that are overgrown and need to be cut back. And it's not just a one shot deal. It it, it happens over a course of two or three years where you cut down 10 percent this year. 20% 20% next year, 15% the year before, and now after three years, you're back to the size that the plant could be, but you don't want to do it all in one year. That's that's putting a lot of stress on the plant, especially this time of year. If they're going to cut these plants back 50%, you're going to open the center of these plants up to this boiling heat that's used to being in the shade. You're going to run into some problems with this. So yeah. um, I think recommending... What you you know, your recommendation is great. You know, I would bring some notes with you to the next homeowner meeting and say, you know, you've looked up some cultural practices for rhododendron, and here's what we should be doing, folks. And if we do it any other way, we could run into major problems and, and we could be killing these plants and putting these plants under stress that's not needed. But if we follow proper cultural practices, this can be done without too much stress on the plant. Right. And Pete, you said 10% one year. Then what did you say? What was? Well, you're going to find that you could prune it back 10%. Then it'll, that'll force it to push on a lot of growth next year. And you may be able to cut it back 10 or another 10 or 15%. You know, the more growth that it produces after you've cut it back, the better. And the right time to prune rhododendrons 
is not so much now, unless you got Maxi rhododendrons which flower on the 4th of July. The Catabians, the PJMs, the Carolinas, they want to be pruned right after flower, which was about a month ago. Because if you prune them now, you're taking away a lot of the flower buds for next year. Um, so, you know, it's a, you know, a lot of these homeowner associations, you know, they need to change their bylaws a little bit in regards <laughs> to how they recommend, uh, you know, cultural practices on plants. And I mean, we could go into grass and how they're mowing too long and too long, uh, too short. And, oh, and yeah. a lot of these chemicals they're putting down, oh, there's no need for half of this stuff. But I know that's Pete, what's in the program. Right. Yeah, and the other little thing, my collards have little tiny holes in them, my container collards. So I don't see any aphids, but my friend ordered ladybugs. Do you uh, think that would be a good idea? Do they eat the aphids? Yes, they do. They'll eat the aphids, the ladybugs will. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things going on that you can't see in the garden that happen at night, like slugs, a lot of uh, caterpillars. A lot of these insects are hiding under leaves and and they look the same color as stems or they're hiring they're hiding under the container of the plant and you know they're tough to find but yeah ladybugs work really good they 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 love aphids. Thank you so much for your call. Let's take another call. BAI you're on the air. Good afternoon. This is Rose from New Jersey. I would like to make a comment, and I also have a couple of questions. The first comment is that back in the 50s out here in western Jersey, we were inundated by those nasty, we called them tent caterpillars. After a good brain, my brother and I would get out with these little burn-zomatics, and we would burn them off. Uh, The questions are this. With the lanternfly and all this crazy stuff, does neem work? I know that the neem, neem and garlic. Yes, neem, is an oil neem does oil. work. The garlic oil works. You know, a lot of these organic, you know, uh, organic sprays are preventative measures. You know, nine out of ten times they won't kill the target plant, but the plant won't land in your yard because they don't like the smell of what you sprayed there, and then they'll just move on. You know, you bring up a great. A, a great story about you know certain insects are going crazy and certain are not like Japanese beetles you know Japanese beetles usually come out the beginning of July I haven't seen one Japanese beetle this year you know why didn't they hatch um, you know there's a lot of insects that are that are going crazy and there's a lot of insects I haven't seen yet so each year brings its tale of um, of, of bad stuff <laughs> okay Fabulous. Thank you so much for your call. And, Pete, I was wondering about our listeners who'd like to get their nails dirty but don't have space of their own. What do you suggest? Well, you know, you could go out and get involved in a garden club. You know, a lot of these condominium complexes and a lot of these townhomes have beautification committees where you can get involved and and get involved in the spring planting or or get involved in some of the some of the things that need to be changed in in, in their bylaws so that you know the condo is 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 doing more things on an environmentally friendly manner you know there's so many different clubs and gardens you can join uh to really have fun uh, in the natural world. You got the Nature Conservancy, you know, a, a lot of local garden clubs, uh, Green Space, Grow NYC, 
our good friend Gerard over there. You know, you can contact him and you can you can you can have fun with him. Friends of the Great Swamp. You know, these are areas. Uh, these are people in, uh, that are protecting many of the very important swamp areas. You know, even up by me, which is the Appalachian Trail Conservancy. You know, Leonard, uh, the Appalachian Trail um, has been pretty much dead since the pandemic. And this year, the activity is as as busy as I've ever seen it. The hikers are back. They're walking the trail. They're having a great time. And, um, you know, to tell you a little bit about some trail stuff that I've been hearing lately before the rains, I sat down a week ago Sunday with a couple of hikers that were walking through. And I said, how's it going out there? He says, it's getting critical. All the secondary streams have dried up, and uh, if we don't get any rain soon, the main streams are going to be drying up. And many people are bailing uh, the hike on the Appalachian Trail this year because it's been so dry. And he told me I was the first watering hole he hit in 20 miles. So thank God for this rain we've been getting the last couple of weeks because it was getting critical dry out there, and I was just hoping we wouldn't have a repeat of last summer. I hate to end on a down note, but uh, we have just a couple of minutes left. And I was wondering, um, hasn't it been predicted that if the human impact on the environment continues as it has, one third of all bird species and, and an even greater portion of bird populations will be gone by the end of the century? Uh, uh, you're right, Leonard. And you know, we're, Are there things uh, we can do that will help those birds survive? Plant native plants. Go out there and get rid of all these exotic species that we're bringing in from the Orient, from from Asia, from Europe, uh, and, and bring in plants that have adapted to our soils, that feed the local insects and birds. You know, once you create a native landscape around your property, you don't need bird feeders. You don't, you don't need, you're creating a, a, a place for them to eat just by the shrubs and trees that you plant in your yard. So just plant native and try to stay with straight species native because we're finding out that the straight species natives have more of a nutritional value uh, than many of the exotics or a lot of the cultivated varieties. Pawpaw trees have almost ex made extinct, and yet they produce a wonderful fruit. You'd think that people would have wanted to maintain them to continue being able to use that fruit. Well, you know what, Leonard? It's all about education and knowledge. You know, a lot of these people out there at the garden don't even know about pawpaw trees. But there's, you know, there's a turn, and and it's starting to they're starting to gain momentum. I'm starting to see pawpaw farms. I'm starting to see pawpaw grown again uh, as as a a, a, a fruit uh, that we're going to hopefully see in the near future uh, on the vegetable uh, carts. So. You know, I think a lot of this stuff, I think a lot of people are starting to listen and a lot of people are starting to, to grow many plants that are indigenous to the area. And just remember one another important thing. These plants require less pesticides, they require less fertilizer, and they require less water. But not only do they attract wildlife, but they're, they, they use less uh, of, of, of a lot of the stuff that a lot of the exotic species depend on. And my great thanks to you, Pete Morosky. He is an environmentalist and nursery man, uh, the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center on Route 22 in Pauling, New York, and a regular on the show. And Pete, uh, 
How can people contact you when you're not on the show? Well, uh, they can always come and visit us. We're right on Route 22, where, the, where Route 22 crosses the Appalachian Trail. We've got a wonderful little garden center here. Bring your hiking boots, and you can you can hike from the garden center up to the conservancy or across the Great Swamp. You can call us at 845-855-7050, or you can email me at pete at nativelandscaping.net, and uh, we'll get right back to you. And thank you so much again. Uh, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of the show. If you'd like to check out more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archive of over 800 shows at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. Uh, if you'd like to reach me directly, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. And right now, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting BAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. We're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to wbai.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's give and then the number 2 wbai.org or 212-209-2950. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of WBAI, what we call a BAI buddy for 10, 15, 20, 25 dollars a month, however much you'd like, uh, as long as you'd like. Uh, and it allows us to plan for the future. And uh, we would want to show our appreciation by sending a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be free speech radio. Again, the number 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org to help support independent radio. We are the only station in the New York area that is 100% supported by our listeners' tax-deductible contributions. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Rob Eshman will discuss his new book, When the Hood Comes Off. We'll see you then. 